Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. This week's guest is Brian Herbert. Now, Brian Herbert is the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. In 2003, he published Dreamer of Doom, a moving biography of his father's Frank Herbert, which will be a key discussion point of today's interview. His acclaimed novels include Sydney's Comet, Sudana Sudana, The Race for God, Time Web, The Stolen Gospels, and Man of Two Worlds, written with his father. In addition to the Hellhole trilogy and Dune series novels co-authored with Kevin J. Anderson, I'm so happy to be able to finally be able to interview Brian. Welcome, Brian. Hi, John. Uh, thanks for that list. I don't need to say any more. <laughs> here we go. Well, I'm going. Now that I've got <laughs> you for the next hour, we're going to be doing some serious talking here because I'm I'm so okay. excited to finally be able to have you as a guest. So, um, okay. I guess uh, to begin with is. And I got a lot of it from reading or listening, actually. I listened to the audiobook on um, about your, your father's biography. Um, how was it that you evolved as an author yourself from your perspective? Well, um, I was working in the insurance business. I was an underwriter and I was uh, an agent and a broker. Um, when I was in my late 20s, my my wife noticed that I was a pretty good writer, but I was writing complaint letters about bad products, <laughs> you know, like mattresses that didn't weren't any good or refrigerators that failed. And I was going up against some legal departments of major corporations and I was defeating them um, and always, always getting what we wanted out of the products. And my wife said, hey, you're writing some pretty darn good letters here. Um, why don't you ask your dad, you know, if he, he would help you? you know, right. I think I was 27 or 28. And I said, well, my, my dad and I have not always gotten along, as you know, and, um, we're getting along pretty well now, uh, now that my wife and I are both in our twenties, but growing up with my father, he and I were at loggerheads a lot, but, uh, we did have a good, great relationship, uh, developing. And so, uh, I took my wife's advice. Her name is Jan. And, uh, took Jan's advice and went and asked my dad. Um, and uh, I wrote a, a complete novel right off the bat. <clears throat> and then he he said to me, um, haven't you seen such and such movie? That's what this novel is all about. Well, I hadn't even seen the movie. It was, it was parallel evolution. So um, I then went and wrote a second novel. And uh, by that time, I, I had an agent. Uh, in New York. And I, um, I never told when I was looking for agents, I never told them who my father was. I just looked for agents. Now, maybe the agent I got finally figured out who I was, but, uh, he looked at my novel and he told me that too much of it resembled another science fiction novel that I had not read. <laughs> so, so I, I took that novel and that one was Sydney's Comet, which was published. I, I took the portion of that novel that was too similar to something else, which I hadn't read. <laughs> and I completely re retooled it into Sydney's Comet. And then my dad was in Hawaii with my mom. And it's a long story as to why they were there. But I sent about a 300 page novel to my dad in Hawaii. And uh, he looked at it. It was Sydney's Comet. And he edited 
about 17 pages of it. And he called that the care and feeding of, of editors and taught me how to, how to set that up. Um, and then he told me, this is how you, you set the pages up and everything. And, and then he said, kind of biblically, go now and do likewise. Um, in other words, I, he was helping me, but I had to go and do the labor, which is as it should be. Sure. Well, that novel was pub. That novel was actually published, and uh, I got a, a glowing Publishers Weekly review on it. Uh, that my mom, my mom read the book. She read the review, and unfortunately, my mother Beverly Herbert passed away about a year later, so she didn't see a lot of the books that I wrote. But at least she saw that d- development there, and and the way my dad did point me in the right direction. And he, as you'll get into later, I think, um, he was a judge for Writers of the Future, and he was very willing to share his time. He definitely was. And it, I mean, in the the book that you, uh, you know, that you wrote there, The Dreamer of Dune, that section about you're becoming a, a writer, he, the way I got from there is like, he worked with you on, like you said, the basics. And then at a point he said, okay, it's over in YouTube. Now you've got to like, sweat the sweat and do the go through that curve to be it's got to be you you know it's got to be your story mm-hmm. not not mine and that was pretty that's cool. right it's tough you're you're putting thank you you're putting yourself out there uh for rejection so it's it, it's tough to be a writer it's it's not an easy task no and just the uh, i mean this interview is, uh, looks like it's going to go interspersing between that the dream, dreamer of doing and his curve versus what yours was because your curve was a lot less traumatic or i didn't i didn't get any particular trauma it was like you when you just said yeah i got an agent straight away it's like that's that's crazy no, crazy no cool. i didn't I, oh. no i didn't i didn't get an agent straight away I, I was turned down they didn't even answer my letters i finally over the telephone i sold uh two books uh to um to the vice president of uh, price stern sloan charles gates uh, and I pitched, I pitched them over the phone, and he published uh, classic comebacks, a uh, collection of classic comebacks over history, and he published incredible insurance claims. Um, once I had those books, uh, then I was able to use those to get an agent. But uh, prior to that, they wouldn't even answer. They didn't even answer my phone calls, my letters, nothing. So I get it. Um, yeah. So that, that part there, though. So- but you sold the books. I was just from your audio, or maybe it was because it was so biographical. It was like, you know, each incident in his life, which we'll get into, is that what he had to go through to actually get a, his short story sold, the number of rejections that he went through to finally get that. And then uh, everything went through mm-hmm. to get his, his uh, novel, uh, Dragon in the Sea, you know, in its various incarnations. That was quite a, it seemed like a traumatic experience, not just an evolution. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he published, well, first of all, when he was in college, it was the university of Washington in 1946, where he met my mother in a creative writing class. Uh, dad did not care about getting a degree. I recently read a book about Art Buckwald, the humorist, and he did the same thing for different reasons. He just went to college like a smorgasbord and took what he wanted. Well, Frank Herbert uh, was very independent, took whatever classes he wanted. And then when he started writing, he wrote whatever he wanted. And he didn't even think about the marketplace. So his stories were too long. They were the wrong subject. Um, he sent them to the wrong place. 
he just uh, he he just didn't have any luck. He finally got like 20 rejections for Dune. That was only a second novel, and but he still felt confident that one day it would be successful. So he had this super confidence. He's like the guy that just keeps raising his hand in class, and um, <laughs> and, and he wouldn't give up. You know, yeah. he just he would not give up, and any any. He didn't care if sometimes he got it wrong. Uh, he just kept raising his hand and kept pushing forward. And uh, Dragon in the Sea, uh, his first novel, he actually invented containerized shipping. Um, and it's it, it's about a submarine that tugs uh, a big container of oil underwater. But the developers of containerized shipping uh, used that idea, and they admitted it, uh, to develop what what we all know today but frank herbert only had like one year of um protection there uh under it uh legally to 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 even keep the idea and then it was it was out there but he was not a um he wasn't a businessman he was a creative genius yeah i definitely got that from from the book was like he was always one step ahead of the collection agent for a lot of (laughs) <laughs> yeah, when uh, when he was 40 years old in about 1960, we had a. I calculated it later. He had a net worth of below zero. He owed way more than any assets we had, including your allowance. That was backlog. <laughs> yeah, he owed me back allowance. Yeah, um, but he 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 had a lot of jobs. I mean, I've had a lot of jobs, but he one of his most interesting was that he was a speechwriter for. Uh, uh, various political candidates, and and he was actually a speechwriter for uh, a, a sitting U.S. senator, Guy Corden, out from Oregon. Um, and Dad learned three different ways of writing speeches. He'd write a short version for Senator Corden. He'd write a medium-length version and a longer version. So he 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 called it concentric circles, where you can keep expanding a kernel of an idea, make it bigger and bigger. And you can see you can do that with a short story. You can turn that into a novel, too. So uh, he certainly could look at um, look at things a lot differently than, than a lot of people do. Um, when he went to the Library of Congress to research speeches, they'd bring in carts of books. Uh, he just ordered the books, and they'd bring in these carts, and he just started pouring through them. But he didn't read everything in every book. But when he was reading one side of a page he'd look and oh there's something interesting on the other side there and he'd go on and and read that and he was absorbing like a like a sponge all this information Um, yeah so yeah his mind is like this huge huge galactic scale thing as we all know as we've have we read yes yeah I'm, i'm just curious because i was totally amazed with the amount of research and study that your father did in creating dune you know, just, just, you know, and the way that it started piecing together the years leading up to actually putting pen to paper for that, for that book. And, um, I'm just like, I was just in awe of the amount of research he did and putting pieces together and just a little, even little things, walking sand dunes and walking a certain way, you could hear the echo and then walking back, it wasn't there. And then how that fit in with, you know, you got to be careful how you walk in the, in the way you walk in Dune because it would alert the um, the sandworms to, you know, it would call to them. They could hear it. So that was, I was amazed yeah, at that. You're, you're, you, you, you make me think of when I worked as an underwriter for INA, which is now Cigna. I had a fellow come up to me one time and he said, uh, 
I've never been to the desert, Brian, but in, in reading your dad's book, I mean, I'm, I'm getting thirsty, you know, yeah. um, but um, it was pretty amazing the detail he could go to and just bring out all the senses. I mean, they were all there. All, I all five of the senses are brought out. It was amazing what yeah. he was able to do with that, just the, the reality of that. And when you, when you add to that, then audiobook version of it, even adds that additional dimension with the sound, you know, so it's, it is way cool what he did. I'm just curious because now you've, he wrote six and then he was in the middle, started the seventh or in terms of the Dune books? Yeah, he wrote six Dune novels. Uh, the first one's a trilogy, Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. And then kind of a bridging work, uh, God Emperor of Dune, and then Heretics of Dune, Chapter House Dune. That was five and six. And those two books were supposed to be part of another trilogy, which would culminate with what he called Dune 7. And he passed away uh, with just the notes that he put yeah. together you know, for Dune 7. Um, it was uh, quite a mystery. I, I don't know how far you want me to go into all that story. Yeah, I'm very but, interested um, in that because I'm also, because I'm interested because he was so studied on that whole world that he had created then you had to pick up the pieces and then, you know, what are the stories, how you found it and the, the safe yeah, that was okay. locked 10, um, 10 miles under the, under the permafrost <laughs> and there you go, you got it and you found, you worked out the combination. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. So, um, at, at, in the very last Dune book that dad wrote, uh, chapter house Dune, he wrote this in, incredible tribute, multiple pages to my mother, Beverly Herbert. And, um, they had both been a, and she had passed away while he was writing Chapter House Dune in Hawaii. She passed away in Hawaii. Right. And, um, and, and I thought that that tribute to her was where the Dune series should end because they'd been a, a both of them were, were writers. Um, they were both creative writers when they met in a class. They were only, the only, they were only students that had published stories in this class. Um, they married and they, thought they would both go off and be creative writers. But as it turned out, everybody was rejecting what my dad wrote. Um, my mom didn't send out as much, but um, she realized that she needed to be the breadwinner. So she got jobs writing advertisements for big department stores like Macy's. Um, and she was very good at it. And so we would travel uh, around the West Coast with her getting jobs doing that. But I thought that with that incredible tribute to her because she suggested the title for chapter house Dune. That was her title. Um, he read the passages from Dune to her and she, she read everything he wrote. She gave him her professional feedback. I, I thought it should end right there. Um, in, uh, many, many other writers, uh, several really well-known writers contacted me asking if they if I wanted to collaborate on new dune books with them after my father died my mom died in 84 my father died in 86 <clears throat> and after dad died uh other writers were asking me if I wanted to collaborate and I said no um I think it should end right there um then in 1997 early 97 January I think it was um I got a letter from uh Kevin J Anderson who I didn't know I didn't know about him um, and he suggested that he'd like to write, uh, a, a, either write a Dune novel with me or he'd like to collab, uh, or he'd like to do it on his own. Uh, he was involved. He was invited 
to write a Dune short story in a book that I was editing. Uh, that book, that uh, anthology never never came to be. But Kevin said, well, a short story could be great, but he'd like to, you know, do more than that. Sure. And so uh, <laughs> I, spent a, I spent about a month not answering him. Um, and I, I, was, I started calling around, seeing what kind of a guy he was. And all I got was were glowing reports. Uh, and everybody liked him. He's a good writer, uh, nice guy. Um, so I, I, I called him after a month later. And um, he and I hit it off immediately. I mean, uh, our wives in the background were listening to this phone conversation and we were starting to riff off each other, you know, one idea, kick off another, um, like in a jazz performance. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kevin was trying to figure out where dad was going with a series for Dune 7. We didn't know. Dad had, dad had made some notes and we didn't know where the notes were. Uh, I saw him using a yellow highlighter on Chapter House Dune, but I, after he, uh, paperback of it, but after he died, I didn't know where that was. So we're both trying to figure out where he was going with it. And I could tell that we had something going and, and Kevin has a lot of energy as, as I do. And, uh, between the two of us, it was just this, this big, big storm of energy brainstorming. And so in May, uh, Kevin flew to, to Seattle. I picked him up at the airport. And on the way back uh, to my house, I almost went off the road because there's so many ideas going back and forth. And, <laughs> you know, Kevin is trying to get them written down or, or recorded. Um, it's just, just a huge brainstorming thing going on. And then shortly after that, I got a call after Kevin went back to, I think he lived in California at that time. He's in Colorado now. After Kevin went back home, I received a call from an estate attorney because both my mother's estate and my father's estate were still open. And this is 1997. That's how complicated. Wow, it's 11 years after. 11 years later still. Wow. Yeah, yeah, 13 years on my mom's and like 11 years on on my dad's. And things were starting to get wrapped up. But this, and things had been wrapped up pretty well on my dad's estate a couple of years before this. But the uh, state attorney said, what do you want to do with these safety deposit boxes of your father's? Um, <laughs> and I said, what safety deposit boxes? Exactly. And he said, well, he said, well, it turns out there's two safety deposit boxes at Seattle First National Bank in Bellevue. Uh, that's a suburb of Seattle. And uh, yeah. those two safety deposit boxes had no keys. Nobody knew where any keys were. Uh, I went down there with an estate attorney. And we started uh, uh, itemizing what was what was inside the two boxes, and a lot of it was innocuous. You know, there were recipes and uh, notes, and there were um, just uh, songs that he was working on. I mean, he was actually writing a couple of songs or poems, and and then there was a couple of real old style <clears throat> Radio Shack uh, floppy disks. I mean, these are these really were floppy, yeah, um, and. Uh, the six, <laughs> inch or, one of them, six inch or three and a half inch. <laughs> they were big. They were, yeah. they, it wasn't the, yeah, they were, they're huge. The big ones, yeah, um, yeah. I remember yeah, that. And, yes. uh, so, yeah, there you go. So so one of them said, um, doing seven notes on it in my dad's handwriting. And then there was another one. I would forgotten if it said the same thing. But uh, I didn't, I didn't have any computer that would, uh, would, would be able to open those up. I mean, they were, 
they were older. I, uh, by that time we, the discs we had were hard plastic and, you know, like you'd put in a, in an apple. Right. Um, and these were, these were radio shack and, you know, like, like in the permafrost, like you said, like yeah. 10 miles under the permafrost. I yeah. like that, John. Um, anyway, I took them, I, a friend of mine knew of, of a man who worked for the NSA, for the National Security Administration, and this guy could crack anything, right? Sure. So I took all this, I took all this stuff <laughs> into him. Uh, there were several discs, quite a few of them, and virtually everything was innocuous, but this one disc had like 30 pages of Frank Herbert's notes um, about where he w- wanted to go in the plot with Dune 7, and uh, and we printed it out, and uh, that's all we had. So then we had the 30 pages. I shared that with Kevin so we knew exactly where Dad was going, and it would have been the uh, sequel to Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune. Um, so that became, later, Kevin and I wrote that as two books, Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune, and that is the story that Frank Herbert outlined. Um, and after after that call, amazing call from that estate attorney and the visit to Seattle First National Bank, um, then I started looking through some boxes that I had in storage, and um, I just I just assumed there there was nothing in there of significance. I really hadn't gone through them, um, and it turned out that <laughs> there were I thought they were just manuscripts that uh, that were of uh, things that Dad had already had published. Thought they were just the drafts and things like that. But as it turned out, digging through those boxes, I found a thousand pages of Dune related notes. Uh, my Dad's type uh, typewritten notes, uh, hand, his handwriting in the margins. I mean, really incredible stuff. So Kevin and I started poring over that and, uh, and, and the rest is history as they say. But, um, yeah, there was, there was quite a, quite a bit there that, that turned up. Um, and really it's amazing that it turned up after I, I spoke to Kevin and, one of the one of the things that I think is happening here is that my mother was what my father called Fay, F E Y. She yeah. was she was she was in touch with another realm. Uh, she was a, a good witch, a white witch. She could find things that were missing. She she's actually you know made appearances to various people in the family. She saved one person in the family's life uh, after she passed away. That's another story I haven't written about, but. Um, I think that she was feeling very good about uh, Kevin, uh, my relationship with sure. Kevin that was developing. And so she thought, um, I mean, this just sounds, it just doesn't even sound believable, but uh, why are all these notes appearing and why does all this come to pass immediately after I, I met Kevin, within a couple of weeks after I met him? So it was sure. meant to be. That makes sense. And I mean, sure. Kevin's such a great yeah. guy, like you said. You know, we'll, we'll get into that you on yeah. writing together stuff. But it's just, and it's interesting too, just as a, a quick side note there on your mom, the relationship to your mom and your dad, they do, it's like, it's, they became a, an amazing unit of, of one with the two, the two individuals become a, a massive unit of, of one where they each, you know, not just your dad driving your mom when she needed to go. and um, your mom being able to look back and, and see stuff that he couldn't, you know, there was, it was just, mm-hmm. it was amazing there. And then just, you know, irrespective of how he wasn't not able to deal with his, his children, 
the relationship he had with his with his wife was just it was so touching yeah yeah well they they had a, a love story for the ages um, yeah yeah dad was the kind of person i would when i was four four or five six years old we lived in a little shack that had a balcony and my bedroom was upstairs and i i would come out to the railing and listen to him telling these incredible stories to his friends but he he was um he was great with his friends he told wonderful stories he was beloved by his friends but he didn't have any patience for children because we kind of got in the way i have a younger brother and an older sister we got in the way of him writing yeah and he blocked out that writing time i mean and and he you know we were not allowed in in that study i knew better than to go in that study yeah um I got my brother that. <laughs> my, my younger my, my, my younger brother didn't know any better and he went in there and went through everything in dad's desk and he was busted but uh i, I knew better <laughs> yeah that was amazing the, the lie detector stuff it was like that was like wow i was yeah yeah, yeah. he he had a world war ii lie detector uh, that he took me up to but i i don't you know i don't even think it I don't even think it worked. I mean, I, I you know, not. Say, there, that, that, <laughs> look at that, look at that dial go over there. That, that proves you're lying. I don't think it worked. I think, yeah. I think it was just all. They all, definitely all got you show. sweating was, there and got all your like, Oh my gosh. You know? Well, no, I, I knew I was telling the truth. I hadn't been in the study, <laughs> but, um, yeah, he was, um, he was a disciplinarian. Uh, that's for sure. And, yeah. Um, his father was a highway patrolman and a cop, and uh, I, I really understood it. I mean, I, I, I never, I, I never felt like I didn't deserve most of the discipline I got. Uh, it was tough. It, it, it was, um, it was tough, but not harsh. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, and it was. Um, I don't. I don't know. It's yeah. just the way it was in the in the fifties. You know. I mean. Yeah. It, it's not. It's not anything to criticize him for. No, that's fine. I'm not trying to go that direction with this. It's just, yeah, yeah. What's you know, I mean, one thing because one thing I gathered from from the the biography there, a couple points. One is, you know, no moss grew under your feet. You know, as you were, <clears throat> as it appeared as, as you were growing up, you're you're constantly going to new places. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Yeah, we were like a military, like a military family. I yeah. moved twenty three times before I was out of high school. Yeah, which is even more than just a military, but it's it's that type of a thing. What was it like then? Because it's kind of you know just be something that affect you and not being able to make long term friends, at least as a, as a kid. Yeah. So um, when we'd arrive in all these different places, my report cards would say that Brian has a like a chip on his shoulder. He's out starting fights and that kind of thing. And, um, so it, it took, it would take me a while each time we moved to settle down. But I mean, man, we were six months here, nine months there. Um, you know, six, nine months in Mexico. We lived in Mexican villages, two different times. Uh, we went down twice. First time with the very well-known writer Jack Vance and his and his wife Norma. Um, second time we went down uh, on our own in in the family car, <laughs> which I, I wrote about. <laughs> yeah. it, it was actually a yeah, 1941 Cadillac LaSalle hearse with chapel doors. So anyway, yeah. that's that's another inter- that, which, that's a whole going down to Mexico, which is totally you know super Catholic there seeing a hearse going down there probably crossing themselves, you know, as you drove by and just think, Whoa, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we moved a lot. 
Um, we were always on, on the edge of poverty. Um, my um, Christmas would Christmas would come around. We didn't have any presents. I'd, I'd go outside, and the, these kids all had their Roy Rogers outfits on and whatever, and and I didn't have anything. But uh, Dad learned in in Mexico that they celebrated Christmas on Twelfth Night, which is January sixth, and so um, it became torture. And so my my younger brother and I would just plead with him to, you know, can we open one present or, or anything, you know? And so finally, after a couple of years, that, that whole thing of, of not having a Christmas and, and having it on 12th night so that, so that he could get better prices on, on merchandise, sure. that, that thing blew up, that, that thing blew up under, under massive protests from my younger brother, Bruce and me. Yeah. <laughs> I can well imagine. Yeah, the idea of that saving fifty percent on the January on December twenty sixth sales means nothing to you. <laughs> but I mean, we 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 really didn't have any money. Yeah, so. no, exactly. So I got then how you um, you came to with Kevin. So you write a lot of books there with with Kevin. Now, the research with your father. How does that work? Because he had such in depth knowledge and understanding of. of all aspects of sand and arid area and how things are changing and, and his, you know, taking the, the what if factor of a whole green earth turning into sand dunes, you know, just, you know, for whatever reason, how's that affect with you and then writing with, with uh, Kevin on yeah. that much research that he did? Yeah, I've, I've had people ask me, um, Brian, weren't you daunted? Uh, I mean, I, I, I never, I, I, I never felt daunted by doing it. Um, Frank Herbert was a genius of like 190 IQ, and if you if you look look up the people uh, under him, that in, that includes Albert Einstein, quite a number of points beneath that, uh, and uh, depending upon how it was rated, but. 190. So if, if you take, <laughs> take my 95 IQ and Kevin's <laughs> <No>. 95, <laughs> that's, those are two below averages, so. by the way. <laughs> no, uh, but, but actually, um, actually it took Kevin to step into one of dad's big shoes, boots and me to step in the other one. But as I mentioned earlier, uh, I felt this incredible energy with Kevin for the project. We're both very creative. I'm I'm more into um, big social um, movements, and uh, so I would write about the the Benny Gesserit and relationships. And Kevin has a physics degree; he worked at Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore. So um, I build relationships. Kevin blows them up. Um, <laughs> but but we we have this great um, we our writing styles are very similar. Uh-huh. So the syntax and all that. And so people that go in and, and read our material, they're not sure often who did the first, who, who wrote the first draft of it. But um, I, I spent a year before I would write a word with Kevin, I spent a year creating a Dune concordance, uh, which is oh, 600 pages, single spaced, yeah, uh, single spaced of, of how Frank Herbert described all the characters, all the settings, uh, the science, uh, everything he put in there. Is, is in the concordance. And so we then had this incredible uh, reference work um, to, 
to launch us. And so we, we, we felt like we weren't just out there in the ether winging it because mm-hmm. we could keep referencing things that he wrote about and things that he said. Um, um, yeah, one thing I, right, um, when, I, when I interviewed Kevin once, because I've just been fascinated how you guys have taken this, just this amazing world and then built upon that to even make it bigger and more amazing. And he said one thing that was like, you've got the, the psychology, the philosophy or religion side, and he's got the, the um, mm-hmm. science fiction side, the, the building worlds and universe and stuff. And you kind of like, yeah. you defer to each other when it comes to that stuff. You're the, you're the final say on all things, psychology, religion. And he's, he's the one that's got the, uh, um, the final say on science fiction, on the science fiction, uh, like I said, the blowing things up and whatnot. Well, we never actually, we never actually set that up in an agreement. Um, never actually spoke it that way, but, um, but that, that is kind of the way, way it's gone. Um, cause I was so, curious how, yeah, like, it, who, who's, cause I've talked to other writing teams, you know, like with Larry and Jerry, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, Sean Williams and I think it was Garth Nix, you know, how do they do it? And there's mm-hmm. gotta be agreement because you've got two amazingly successful authors who are used to writing their worlds. Now you're having to combine two such people into a single world. That's not even your world to begin with. You know, how do you do that? And so I was, I was just fascinated with that. So I talked to him. That's kind well, of, like there's, I, the, yeah, there, 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 there's a lot of setting your ego aside. Um, I remember I, I wrote this really, really great chapter. It was in, it was in the first trilogy. It was either in house to Trades or house Harkonnen. And I wrote this great chapter. I thought it was great. So with, with my draft, I, I sent that all into Kevin. And by that time I had his chapters. So basically we each write half the chapters and then we'll send them to one or the other of us to combine them all. Well, at this point I had all the chapters and I, I sent off this great chapter and folded in, into my part of the story. Uh, Kevin then sent the whole book back to me and that whole chapter was missing. <laughs> he cut it. And so, okay. So, so I love the chapter. So, so I read it, I read it again and I, and I figured out without even talking to him, I figured out what he didn't like about it. Um, I then, <laughs> I then rewrote it and stuck it back in. And when I sent it back to him, it was in there. <laughs> And he didn't, he didn't cut it and he didn't say anything. <laughs> wow. So that worked out well. That's great. But it's great that you guys are both have such amazing independent careers, but that you're able to do this with, with Dune. And you, do you write books concurrent? You've got the Dune going as well as your own personal single. Your, oh, yeah. your soul, like, does that, how, yeah, how is it doing that? Okay, it's all the time, but how do you do that with? Well, I block, I block out time. I, um, if if I'm working on on Dune, I I don't at that moment work on the on the other material except from to make notes or or to add a little of this or that. But I I've got the time blocked out, and so then when I send the manuscript off to Kevin, then by the next day after after I do my wife's to do list, then I then I will launch into my solo project. Um, so um, I'm I'm very much into just blocking out time for for all kinds of different it. things. So I, I just shut down everything except my wife of 55 years. Uh, she's the priority. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, that's that's 
that's very very cool and that's something um is is amazing just you know i mean you you've had this you know your whole childhood like i said 19 different um homes by the time you're you're still in high school is that what you said there oh 20 uh, yeah 23 moves and then when i met jan um she was 16 and i was barely 17 so we were really young um and like three years later we eloped eloped to reno had a wedding for ten dollars uh i mean it you certainly don't you know you don't have the big hundred multi hundred thousand dollar weddings and things um there was nowhere to go but up and uh that's been an incredible relationship um but you've been pretty much just in the pacific northwest your your whole adult life then no, I met her in California. Uh, oh. I met her in the Bay Area. Yeah, and uh, I thought I was poor, and uh, actually, she was even more poor than I was. Although living in Marin <laughs> County, very, very nice, yeah. very nice county. There's plenty of poor people living in in Marin County. So uh, we eloped from from that area, went to Reno, um, <laughs> and it was um, it. There, there never was much money. Never growing up. Uh, with it, I remember one time somebody saw a an interview of my dad done by People Magazine, a story, and it showed a picture of my father with his swimming pool in Port Townsend, Washington. And so somebody asked me, "Well, when you were growing up, did you like uh, help your dad clean the pool?" What do you mean? We didn't even have a pool. I I I slept on a on an unheated porch on a toboggan. I didn't even have a, have a bed. So um, <laughs> was it was it a neighbor's don't, pool? Don't, and, and, <laughs> no, no, we didn't have a television. We, we if I, I wanted to watch was, television, I went and. <laughs> that was funny. The, the story about how your father was writing uh, screenplays, and it would be rejected. No, that's like this, you know, because your father never watched television, so he wouldn't know. And then, like your father said to you, like, you know, it's in another book. It's already another book. That was when you, when you made yeah. that comment. I was like, oh, that's like your father was the same thing when he tried submitting scripts for uh, for television. He, yeah, he would he would send a story in um even with even in the midst of a flurry of rejections, he would send a story in and immediately he he wouldn't just wait for a reply. Immediately he'd jump into another story. He'd be writing another story. Yeah. Yeah. That's confidence. Yes. Now that's one thing too I think is is really important for people listening to this podcast because a lot of aspiring writers um all over the world that are, that listen to this and your father, and I'm assuming it feels the same thing with yourself too, but definitely with your father, because that's the book that you know I read prior to doing this interview. Was just there was no way he he was so certain of himself that he was a writer. He was going to be a writer. He was destined to be a writer. Every descriptive term you can have about writer, in terms of it was going to be, was in your father's world. It was never anything other than that. And I think that's important for yeah, people. Yeah, he really. Too. Yeah, he really visualized um, not only being a writer, but he visualized the success of Dune in particular. Yeah, so like for yourself, because um, you've obviously evolved from what you were doing before your other job to becoming now a full-time writer, has that been, was that also in the back of your head as, as a youth that you wanted to go in that direction, or how did that evolve for you? Well, I, I, I was, a I was a good artist when I was growing up. I, I would win all these art contests in school. And so my, my artwork would go up uh, in, in the school 
uh, right by the the office, elementary school. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, that'd be Brian Brian's artwork right over the the calendar for that month. Um, and my mom liked my artwork so much when I was maybe three or four that she knitted this uh, rug, uh, which I called it the singing cowboy. And so she crocheted a rug. Um, so I, I was more I was more of an artist at that time. Um, I did write a short story when I was eight years old. My mother loved it enough that she she typed it up um and it was it was kind of uh, humorous i did win a second prize in a national kellogg's cornflakes <laughs> <laughs> writing contest um in in which i was supposed to come up with a jingle uh for them to use for advertising um which i did and i won second prize and they sent me a motorola hi-fi probably worth 100 bucks at the time but i was like 11 years old so that was that was quite something. So that was a writing contest that I actually placed second in. Um, and then um, I was a musician. I, I played the trumpet in a, a big marching band that traveled all over the West Coast. And uh, I uh, played the guitar. I sang. Uh, but I, I've, I've realized that, you know, that the artwork I did, the music and the writing, they're, they're all close, closely linked. I mean, there's something in creative in all of them. Um, and they kind of merge one into the other. Um, I evolved in, into a writer, I guess I, I could have become a musician or, or even an artist, but, uh, the, the writing is what I, what I did while keeping my day job. Um, I saw the problems of my, my own family we had financially. So, um, I always kept my job in the insurance business and I was, I was a steady guy. I went in nine to five and, you know, brought home the, the meager, well, not too meager, but it was okay. I, I brought in increasing paychecks. I did have some success. I became a broker, mm-hmm. uh, insurance broker, and that uh, was doing really, really pretty well. But I always, uh, I started writing late in my 20s, and, and then it was a competition as to whether I was going to continue to to work in the insurance business or whether I was going to be a writer. I did quit the insurance business about 1984 because uh, I was selling novels. And then I went into a period where instead of a hardcover every year, I'd come out with a, they'd give me a paperback, published paperback every year. And then instead of every year, it was every other year. And I could see the writing on the wall. So by 1990, 91, about six years later, I uh, went out and got my insurance license back. <laughs> yeah. So I went back in the insurance business. Um, that would be the early nineties. Um, but so I would say, I would tell um, most writers to, you know, keep your day job. There are very few people that can make a full-time living as a writer. Um, I once heard that the number was 10,000 people in the United States. That's not very many. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it may be more than that now. So I, I would say, keep that day job in my dad's case, he worked off and on. He worked for, uh, Hearst newspapers up and down the West coast, but not all the time. My mom was the, was the breadwinner in the family. Um, I would say for writers, write what you know about, I mean, th- think about giving a speech with, uh, let's say you're giving a speech and you want to, you have to give that speech with no notes. You you have to talk about something that you know. Yeah. So do that with your writing. Your writing too. Write about what you know, um, and 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 stick to what you know, um, and enlarge on it as you can. Um, so and then even if you achieve some success, 
Never assume it will continue <clears throat> at that level. <laughs> and always prepare for, for the inevitable rainy days that come in the career of a writer. Um, a, a good friend of mine, very well-known writer, um, once said to me that you can, you can fall as, as you, you can go down as fast as you go up. And he, he's right. I mean, you really have, I mean, I, I, I quit the insurance business. I had to go back into insurance. So, um, I've, I've, I've paid some dues. I've had some hard knocks. Um, it, it's a tough road. Yeah. Um, okay. That, I mean, I, I think that's important people to know. And I know that some of the judges will tell the winners of writers of the future. Okay. I can promise you that your next short story, your next book, is not going to have this type of recognition and celebration as you just had with this award ceremony. Yeah, I, I have another writing friend who had a huge success on his first novel. He, he once said to a large gathering, uh, like a year after this huge success, a movie, millions of books sold, he said, you know what? I have nowhere to go but down from here. <laughs> so, um, he, it was tongue in cheek, but that, I mean, you, you can never quite you can never quite come up to that great book that he wrote. And you know, well, Frank Herbert spent his life uh, talking to people and say, "But this isn't Dune. Uh, not even these sequels. These aren't Dune." Well, no, but he wrote Dune. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that enough? I mean, he could have just written one book. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's amazing too, just how that book, yeah, it's it's such a pedestal, and it makes it hard when people try to when you compare every all the other books and the ones that you and Kevin are writing to Dune. I mean, it's amazing that, that that universe continues to grow, but for somebody to try, because the thing that makes that Dune on the pedestal, because it was, it was the first, it was the beginning, it was the the, mm -hmm. the culmination of an amazing amount of creativity that your father put together, and here you go, and so mm -hmm. it, it hit the whole, even though that wasn't his first love, the whole science fiction uh, field, and was one of the books that actually took it from being the ugly stepchild to being the celebrated genre that is, that it has come to be um, yeah. trying to, to make that go. Cause you know, you and Kevin, you know, you're contributing to that world, but Dune is already, it, it's created. It's, it's, it's big ta-da and it's everything builds to help shore up that position of being one of the most beloved science fiction books of all time. But that's what it does. They themselves well, are not. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, I never felt daunted by the whole task, as I said. I, I'm not sure if Kevin did or not, but I suppose when you think in terms of, um, I mean, why even, why, why even try to think that you've written something as good as Dune? I mean, you can't. Right. So, um, so just, I mean, even Frank Herbert was was criticized for some of his his sequels, which were were great. But geez, these aren't Dune. Well, no. What what could be better than Dune? Well, nothing. <laughs> so yeah. so in 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 that way, that that kind of gives us a a little bit of uh, of leeway there. But the the fans, the hardcore Frank Herbert fans, are they they love his universe so much that when we write the sequels and prequels and enlarge the story because dad did leave a lot of room for the story to be enlarged. Uh -huh. When we enlarge the story, we, we have to write in terms where we're, we're trying to please the really hardcore fans that are really hard to please. Um, the ones that were really hard on Kevin and me before anything was published, uh, 
um, they had a name for him and they had a name for me on the internet and they were not uh, complimentary, but we actually got uh, apology letters from some of those people, not all of them, when they read Dune House Atreides. Um, one of the apologies letters said, uh, and this is from a really hardcore, diehard die Frank Herbert fan, you know, this is pretty good. What you guys wrote here is pretty good. <laughs> so we got off to we got off to a good start. Um, another one said, well, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that backhanded uh, compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, but that's that's from somebody that's a very severe critic. And and when we were on book tour, some of them would show up and kind of you know kind of glower at us and things. So, but some of those guys turned out to be pretty nice. And and I understand where they're coming from. They love this universe, but Kevin and I are showing that we love it too. Yeah, and um, oh, we're, yeah, fans. Absolutely, you know, yeah. we're fans. Yeah, even even if we have to write the next story, we're uh, we ultimately your fans. But, um, yes. Now you're yeah, both also fans. being both fans. You're also both um, judges of the Rise of the Future contest. How about that for a bridge? So <laughs> there you go. Um, and so was Frank Herbert. Exactly. So. Did your father ever mention or mention or talk to you at all about Riders of the Future? Oh yeah, absolutely. And um he loved doing that. Um in fact, aside from Riders of the Future, he he would give help to aspiring writers. Um I think the, there was a Western writer that helped dad. I think it was Tommy Thompson, who was Dwight Eisenhower's favorite author. I'd have to look that up again, but he was a Western writer. And he helped my dad. He just It was like a short conversation. But uh, he said to young Frank Herbert, uh, here's my advice, work like hell, kid. Um, and um, dad gave time to young writers, uh, not only through Writers of the Future, which he was a judge, uh, but he would he would go, uh, go on speech. He'd be on speeches at college campuses all over the United States when Dune was just starting to hit in the early 1970s. Um, and he would go sit on the floor of a, a dorm room with college kids and eat pizza on the floor and share what he knew. And some very well-known science fiction writers said to dad, why are you sharing your information? Why are you sharing this professional information so readily with them? Um, these are, these are our trade secrets and it's going to make it tougher on us wow. and this and that. And dad didn't care about any of that. he, he, he'd had somebody give him a helping hand. Uh, he'd, he'd, uh, he wasn't born with a silver spoon. Um, so he certainly could empathize with somebody who's, who wanted to be a writer and, and, and faced obstacles. So, um, he would do whatever he could, uh, to, to help people. And, and I've had people come up to me when I've been on book tour and tell me these anecdotes uh, about my father. And, um, they're, they're very heartwarming, uh, yeah. to hear that from other people. I, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. yeah, that essay he wrote also for Rise of Future was just an amazing, it was very short. And I think that may have even been the last thing that he wrote, but um, it was just really that encouragement for the aspiring writer. It was just, it was such a, a wonderful little piece of of advice that he gave, but it was just so reassuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you've republished that, yeah. uh, uh, like a page or two that he wrote, yeah. but it's, it's very concise. Um, and uh, yeah, he's... Uh, <laughs> he, he's a great example for, for 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 other writers. He was so generous with his time. Yeah. Um, which is which is great. And what a big personality! I mean, he, he, if if he were if if he were in a room talking, um, all the, if we're in a restaurant 
and he's talking, people it felt like all the tables were getting closer and closer. Everybody's <laughs> listening to him. Yeah. Uh, he was the most interesting man in any room. Which is amazing. Now we originally, But he was willing to share. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now we we met originally you're on a book tour with Kevin. You were at I think it was Romans in um mm-hmm. here in Los Pasadena. Angeles. In Pasadena, yeah. And um mm-hmm. Kevin wrote so I I came and I got as many people from the office as I could get there to come in and see you guys and that's when we first met. Mm-hmm. And then um yeah. while you're there that weekend they invited you to come over to office services and you met touring and shortly thereafter you were invited to and accepted to become a judge for the for the contest. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, it's been great having you as as one of the um, judges. What for you is um, either the best part, the most fun part, or what makes it so worthwhile for you as a contest judge? And specifically, what, what makes Riders of the Future, from your perspective, because we're coming into the 40th year now, which is in its Yeah, I, and I happen, to have, I happen to have several stories to read right now um, and uh, I've, I've been asked to return them with my comments by, I think, February 28th. Um, so I, I, can, I, I can empathize with, 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 with people wanting to, to break into this very difficult uh, profession. Um, and so anything I can do in, in my own small way, I'll, I'll do it. And that's just judging a contest or maybe giving somebody some advice when I'm on book tour at a convention. Um, I, I really think that our, our lessons of, of writing really need to be shared. And I, I wrote yeah. about a lot of these lessons in Dreamer of Dune. I, I went over a lot of the things my dad taught me. And I, For sure. Um, I, I would hope that people can use that information. Um, there's, there's just so much I could, I could say right, right now about particular pieces of advice, but, um, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm not a person that, um, enjoys talking about myself too much. I don't, um, I, I don't mind talking about Frank Herbert, um, or I don't (laughs) mind talking about another, a young writer and, and extolling them. But if, if anybody expects me to blow my own horn, that's really not me. I, I don't feel comfortable doing it. Um, and I figure if, if my writing is good enough, let let somebody else talk about it. Uh, <laughs> so um, maybe I'm I'm different no, in that regard from. No, that's from that's some. totally fine. I mean, that's why you got people like me that can help extol the values of of your writings, which is part of what the purpose of this podcast is. Yeah, I've, I've definitely mm-hmm. enjoyed. Um, I mean, I've read. Obviously, this book here that you did, which I'm just fascinated with the detail. Did, did this all come from your mom's notes, or because some of the stuff is like, I I'd be hard pressed, and I've got a, sometimes I got a pretty good memory, sometimes not. But you just have just the excruciating detail in some of these things. Where I'm just like, <laughs> how do you do that? So very 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 little of that came from my mom's notes. Um, I I found a journal that she had kept in 1955. Yeah. We lived in in a village in Mexico, and um, Dad was trying to write. He was struggling at elevation of eight thousand feet, um, struggling with the atmosphere and struggling with the constant interruptions, people pounding on the door of his study. But it wasn't so you. That that didn't. No, <laughs> I didn't dare. Exactly. But um, but but I did find that journal, and it and it it's not very long. It's uh, you know, I don't know, ten ten pages or something like that. I uh-huh. don't really know. I have to look at it again, but there'd be 
so some of that information I did I did fold into our story about Mexico, but the way I put Dreamer of Dune together is I, I did interview people in the family, but I also the way my memory works is I'll remember this, I'll remember that, and I, and just I'll remember little snippets, and I'll start making notes, and and then later I'll put the start putting the notes together chronologically, um, and by subject. But um, oh, and also when I was with my mother and father in their last years, of course, uh, I started keeping a journal, and I kept it. In the beginning, I took wine labels. I would soak the wine labels off of the bottles. And these are incredible wines. You know, uh, my, my, my dad was a wine critic for the San Francisco examiner. He'd fly out to Napa and Sonoma. But so I started writing on the back of the dry wine label, little journal, uh, about our, our family. But then I soon expanded that into a full fledged journal about mostly about my father and, and my mother. And so I would interview them about our family history and dad would say things like we descend from Henry the eighth, but the wrong side of the sheets, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, it, it, it's, uh, just interesting stuff. And so, uh, then I added my own memories to all, to all that and, and, and came up with dreamer of Dune. Dreamer of Dune is about, it's pretty big. It's like five or 600 pages. It's like 190,000 words, but I actually wrote a couple thousand pages there's a couple of 2500 pages or something but you just have to keep cutting so that that's one piece of advice to writers i guess just write write it big and then cut it back yeah you know? uh so I've done like, that like your dad like your dad told you just don't hold back just write it all there i'm just i'm just yeah curious, do, yeah for someone who's not familiar with your works obviously we're talking about dreaming of doom well, what would you recommend as as a entry-level um, Brian Herbert book for somebody to read. Well, you might want to take a look at my Time Web trilogy, which uh, people have said is the closest thing I've written to Dune. Um, it's about this vast galactic um, empire of, of merchant princes, and I, I kind of base that on my travels to Venice and learning about the merchant princes there. But I also tend to write about big social issues. Uh, the Little Green Book of Chairman Rama is where a um, an ecological uh, society is created in which people are kept on uh, reservations for humans and they're not, not allowed to go out into the wilderness and, and, and foul up the, the uh, environment anymore. Uh, and there's extreme environmental laws uh, to keep people in line. Um, and if, if they're not, if they don't do what they're supposed to do, People are actually recycled, which is not a not a good thing to happen to you. No. So it's an extreme. Uh, it, you take an extreme of an of environmentalism, and and what if it went to the extreme of it becoming a religion and 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 a whole society, and and a dictatorship, um, and then I have the other side of that, <clears throat> are are people that that want something more moderate. Um, and they're they're trying to survive in that kind of an environment. It, it's really a a police state of environmentalism. <laughs> so that's taking it to the extreme. But it, it's it's begun. The society has begun by a, a man of high ideals. But it but it's it's the people under him that start taking advantage of the green movement and calling this green and 
um, and, and trying to trying to use the terminology, the buzzwords and things for their own benefit. Um, and it turns out a lot of those people have some really bad carbon footprints when the truth comes out. So it's, um, it's an interesting speculation on, on what would happen. But I also wrote a, a, um, a book about what would happen if, if there were more than just the 12 apostles and the, of Jesus, and what if they were women? And what if the writings of the women apostles had been hidden by the church over the years? Um, and that, and, and there actually are gospels that are found. And so that's the stolen gospels, which, um, I enjoyed, enjoyed writing. Wow. Um, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, that, that actually was read by a very, uh, very famous editor who thought that should reach a large audience. It's about a group of women <clears throat> that form their own, uh, their own women's Bible, holy women's Bible. And it includes, the, they're able to resurrect the missing Gospels, and they put it into this new Gospel for women. Um, and that's the, the Stolen Gospels and the Lost Apostles. That's two novels. Um, and so I, I mean, I could, I could go on and on, but yeah. as I said, I don't, I, I write a lot of books, but I, I don't like to talk about myself too much. <laughs> well, that's, that's this pretty good, good direction for somebody to be able to discover the, the works of Brian Herbert, because we're very familiar with, well, many people are familiar with uh, Frank and, and finding you via the, uh, the expanded world universe of Dune with both you and Kevin, but just your works themselves too. I think this is a great way to let people know, you know, how to just. Yeah, I was a sociology major at Cal Berkeley during the free speech movement. So I, I do like to write about big social issues. Sure. Which is definitely always a value to that. But anyway, so this has been, I've really, I'm really glad that we persevered and, and made this interview happen. I, I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you, John. I, I enjoyed it too. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Brian. Okay, thank you, John. I'll talk to you soon.